The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We are in the lead up to Thanksgiving week. Yep. <laughs> You're not excited about Thanksgiving. I just don't get jazzed up about Thanksgiving in the way others do. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Thanksgiving on the back end of the podcast, but we have a lot of news to get through this week. As we were dropping the podcast last week, it was like everyone decided to dump their news on Thursday morning. The Beth Woods saga continues, and she will resign effective December 15th, and she entered into a draft plea deal with the DA here, Lauren Freeman, where she will not have a criminal trial, but will retain her pension if she resigns. Thanks to the reporting of Brian Anderson, he got that news out last week. We also had a slew of campaign announcements this past week. There will be a primary for Attorney General on the Democratic side as Durham County DA Satana DeBerry announced Friday she is going to jump into that race. Yeah, we heard, uh, you know, Jeff Jackson, the Democrat who had announced a couple weeks prior, he has a lot of endorsements from legislators in the General Assembly, but Senator Greg First time Me- for everything. <laughs> That's true. Senator Greg Meyer came out strong for DeBerry and even seemed to take a backhanded shot at Jeff Jackson. Uh, needless to say, that's going to be an interesting primary. He's back. Bo Hines is running in the 6th Congressional District. If you're wondering, didn't he run in the 13th last time? And you are correct. He's run out of four out of the 14 districts, it seems. Well, you so, don't have to live in the district that you're running, even though I think he said he does live near Charlotte. So I don't know. Any district can be a banana republic if you try hard enough. <laughs> Yeah, wait long enough. He'll be in another district coming to you soon. Uh, We had an announcement this week that someone is done with the General Assembly. Yes. Representative John Autry said he will not be running again. And he specifically said that serving in the minority feels like you're getting your teeth kicked in every 20 minutes. (laughs) Senator Dean Proctor in the Hickory area, that's Catawba County. He went on a radio show this past week. Looks like he's calling it quits. And we have an announcement that former Representative Mark Hollow, he is running for that seat uh, to take Senator Proctor's place. Of course, that is a Republican all the way around. It is a Republican district. Research assistant Cody Honeycutt, he's a research assistant to Representative Wayne Sasser, said he will be running for Representative Sasser's seat. Representative Sasser is a Republican. He chairs the Health Committee. Cody staffs that health committee. Uh, Congratulations to him. While a lot of announcements are going on, we got a poll this week from Meredith College pretty much showing that, you know, we got about 11 months until Election Day. But if the election was today, we are looking at some nail biter races. 
In the Republican primary, no surprise, Trump is ahead in the polls. 51% of those polled said they would vote for Trump. 14% DeSantis, 9% Nikki Haley, and then drops off. And we assume that President Trump is going to be on the ballot for the Republican Party. And we assume that President Joe Biden will represent the Democrats. If that race was today, this poll found that Biden would best Trump by just 1%, well within the margin of error. Then at the gubernatorial level, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, he is really maintaining his lead over the field. Although we should note that Bill Graham, new challenger, he's polling at 5%, got in about three weeks ago and is already leading the other candidates, shall we say. Yeah, we've seen that commercial over and over and over again. Over on the Democratic side, Attorney General Josh Stein, he's the presumed nominee for the Democrats. He has a challenger in former Supreme Court Justice Mike Morgan. He is beating him 38 to 11 percent. So let's just assume Stein and Robinson make it out of the field. They're in the general election. Stein comes in at 38 percent and Robinson comes in at 36 percent. So 2024 is going to be quite a matchup. What's really important about this poll and those primary numbers for the gubernatorial race, on the Republican side, 42% of people said they're undecided. On the Democratic side, 44% said they're undecided. So just to be clear, the people that are ahead are ahead, but half of the folks haven't decided. So let's put electoral politics aside for a minute and talk about Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. He is headed to Israel. He's leading a delegation of two sitting senators in the General Assembly, Senator Brad Overcash down in Gaston County and Senator Dave Craven in Randolph County. We wish them safe travels to that very unsafe area of the world. Additionally, on Tuesday in betting news, it was announced that mobile sports betting will not launch on January 8th. That was the earliest date that it could start. It's not going to start that date. So we'll see what happens for the Super Bowl. We had some staffing announcements this week. Lane Hickman, who is the legislative assistant to Senator Danny Earl Britt from Robinson County, she is leaving this month to take a job as a lobbyist. And our friend Clark Reamer, the chief of staff to Representative Jason Sane, uh, he is a longtime veteran a staffer in the General Assembly. He is also going to be a lobbyist. Congratulations to both of them. We wish you well. This week, we had a really fun and insightful conversation with Dr. Michael Bitzer. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Dr. Michael Bitzer, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Tell us about your job on a day-to-day -day basis. Folks know you from TV, mm -hmm. radio shows, 
but that's not your everyday job. That's not the job that puts money, you know, into my <laughs> bank account. I do have a day job. And what I am is a professor of politics and history at Catawba College in Salisbury. And I also hold the Leonard Chair of Political Science there. And my job is to teach American politics classes. So I'm teaching three classes this semester. Uh, quite a full load for somebody that's got everything else going on in the world. But I really do enjoy being in the classroom. And I think the public nature of what I do is an extension of the classroom because I really want to help people better understand politics. And particularly for my students, uh, especially the politics majors that I work with, uh, it, it's important that they understand a lot of the complexity of politics nowadays. A lot of people like to see things in very black and white, red versus blue dynamics. And inevitably, after 15 weeks, the students will say, you know, I, I, I really don't, I, I know a lot more, but I have a lot more questions. And that's, that's the, the primary focus of my day job activities. It also includes, I imagine, research and writing. It does, Can yes. you talk about your scholarly work? Yeah, I've been real fortunate. Uh, we are a primarily teaching-oriented institution, so I've been able to carve out a kind of niche of doing some research. We do value scholarship because we need to stay current in our respective fields. The kind of research that I really enjoy, of course, is North Carolina politics. You know, comes out of a Southern history, Southern politics study that I had in graduate school as well. I'm originally from South Carolina, so it's not a far extension to, to try and understand the state mm -hmm. uh, just to the north of, of my home state. But it, it has been a lot of fun to try and dive into and try and understand the patterns, the dynamics of a very interesting political state, needless to say. Dynamic in Southern politics goes hand in hand. Yep. We've seen a lot of change. It must be fascinating for you to, to do the scholarly work. It is. And for particularly students today, they don't have that historical knowledge. They don't have that life experience to understand that at one point in time, we had these things called conservative Southern Democrats. And we also had these things called liberal Northeastern Republicans. And trying to understand and teach uh, the transformation of the political parties and the transformation of the South in and of itself, that is several weeks of my Southern politics class, just trying to get students oriented to think about, well, at one point, Democrats ruled everything in the South. And now it feels like Republicans rule everything in the South. And understanding that transition, that realignment, it takes a while. I had one student say, you know, I've had you for three classes now and you've covered this in every class. I think I'm starting to understand it now, <laughs> but I've still got a lot more questions. And that all always kind of leads off into another tangent in my class. Tell us about your journey getting to North Carolina. So I grew up in Clemson. And my wife grew up in Charleston. And in terms of South Carolina dynamics, that's a mixed marriage, the upstate versus the low country. Uh, having grown up in Clemson and got my uh, undergraduate degree from Erskine College and then a master's from Clemson when I worked there for about 10 years, I then went to the University of Georgia 
and studied my PhD in political science. And I was sitting in the grad lounge uh, one afternoon. I had just finished my comprehensive exams, was working on my dissertation, and looked at the job ads. And there happened to be this job posted two days prior for Catawba College. They were looking for an American politics person, really focused on teaching. That's what I wanted to do, kind of wanted to stay in the South. So I thought, you know what, I'll just throw a resume together, writing sample, whatnot, send it off, not expecting in any way, shape or form to get an interview. I thought this would just be good practice. Two weeks later, I'm interviewing on campus, and a week later, I get the job offer. And I go back to the grad lounge at Georgia, and some of my colleagues had been looking like a year, year and a half for jobs and had not gotten anything. And one of my close friends asked me, well, how did that interview go? You know, I said, well, yeah, it it went pretty good. (laughs) And uh, she said, you know, have you heard anything back? And I said, like, yeah, I kind of got the offer. She wouldn't talk to me for like three weeks afterwards because it was just unheard of to get that kind of offer and then, you know, know where you were going to be in that regard. So that's what brought me in 2002 to, uh, to Catawba and to Salisbury and to North Carolina. So you're two decades there now. Yes. What has changed about the student population or maybe their knowledge of politics? Particularly the politics majors. I have discreetly noticed over several years now that very few of them want to run for office. For the most part, these are the children of polarized politics. Mm -hmm. They have known nothing other than the two parties at loggerheads. What gives me hope is that these folks want to serve the public. And oftentimes they want to go into government work. They want to work at the local level or at the state level, maybe even at the national level. And I think that this intrinsic motivation of public service is what has been a kind of common thread for a lot of our graduates at Catawba. Even with the non-majors, they, they want to try and understand politics because, as I talk about it the first day, government's going to impact your life whether you like it or not on a daily basis. So you need to understand the dynamics of how our government works. A lot of people focus at the national level, but, you know, state and local government is so important to everyday lives. So when they first arrive and they're the children of this polarization that you described, there must be a certain amount of time you use to maybe break down some myths about each other? Mm -hmm. Or how does this work? I mean, these kids come in, right? Republicans good, Democrats bad, or vice versa. Yep. And I tell folks early on, I've only got a few set rules for class. One is you have the right to express your opinion. The second and the most closely associated is by having that right, you also have the responsibility to listen to the other side. You may not agree with them, but at least understand where they are coming from and what their perspective is. Let's talk about your interactions in the NC poll world. Okay. We see you on Capitol tonight. You're quoted in the paper. You are pretty prolific on Twitter, and we use a lot of the tools you put on social media. You have a candidate tracker right mm-hmm. now that we tap into, and I know a lot of folks in NC Poll World do this. Can you talk about the public side or the forward-facing side yeah. of Dr. Bitzer? Particularly in graduate school, folks tend to be focused on their research and 
what that research focus tends to be is very insular. It tends to be to, you know, a small group of other political scientists who are studying this very siloed topic. And, you know, we're bouncing ideas off of each other, but it's a very closed community. I think my experience as a former newspaper reporter and then a public affairs officer at Clemson kind of instilled in me, there needs to be public reach. There needs to be public scholarship. There needs to be a, a public-facing aspect to what I do. And I, I started early on by doing that and just putting out information. Here's something that may put this particular event or a particular issue into some context. Because I think oftentimes people read the news or they hear about an event and they don't understand all the complexity behind it. And trying to get folks to see some patterns, see some trends, I think Social media has been that kind of opportunity to really promote those things. And looking at just basic data, looking at basic trend lines, uh, that's something that I try and instill in my students to say, look, you can tell about something if you look deep enough into the data, for example, or understand the history, the context of it. So I think the the public engagement aspect has really been, for me, professionally and personally rewarding. I never expected this kind of opportunity to present itself. I thought, you know, if I'm teaching my classes and I've got good students and I help them, that that's a career worthy of, of what I'm doing. Uh, but this has kind of just taken off and taken a life of its own. And I'm very appreciative of being able to help educate, I hope, the public in in general ways. What do you enjoy or think is special about North Carolina politics? We, we are such a microcosm of national political dynamics. I don't think we realize how much of almost a petri dish we are of the national, I mean, the urban-rural divide, the, the sense of voter party loyalty the deep divisions. Uh, there, there are so many dynamics at play in this state. And I think it's a rare state, particularly in the South, to have this kind of battleground status when so many other Southern states have moved so solidly Republican. I mean, South Carolina is, you know, uh, Georgia has now become the new battleground, but, you know, we're, we're still very much in this intense back and forth. And, and I'm always learning something. I mean, there are, there are days when I think, how, how did that happen? And that usually leads me down a rabbit hole to try and figure out things. But I think it is, it is a constant sense of wanting to learn and then sharing that knowledge with the public, my students, uh, whoever I can. We can't look too far in the future. We don't know, but we can look into 2024. That's coming. <laughs> By the way, I think it's probably already it's here. here. It's, it's here. here. Right? <laughs> I need to tell you. <laughs> When you're sorting it out, or what are you looking for to see where we're going, what 2025 is going to look like? Yeah. Have you have you thought about that? Uh, certainly 2024, I would describe as probably going to be, once again, off the charts. I mean, we kind of think, well, you know, 2016, that was really intense. Well, 2012 was really intense. 2020 was just, you know, beyond bizarre. I think 2024 is just going to be as intense as what we've seen in the past. Uh, So many of the dynamics that I kind of look at at the micro level help to influence the way I think about the macro perspective. Uh, 
you know, counties are moving more and more towards one party over the other. Where North Carolinians live and the sorting that they have done, consciously or unconsciously, uh, you know, in, in some of the research I've done looking at all the precincts, we've got less than 15% of the precincts in North Carolina that are competitive, that fall in that 45 to 55. Mm-hmm. 70% of all the precincts are overwhelmingly for one party over the other. Mm-hmm. So just based on political geography and where people reside, I think a lot of that is kind of the foundational knowledge that then sets me to say, okay, we've got cities that are moving more democratic. We've got rural counties that are as Republican or slightly going more Republican. We've got surrounding suburban counties that are the most Republican areas in this state. You know, just thinking about those dynamics, where votes are coming from, for the statewide races, you know, I, I describe the state as a, um, the, the margin of victory is going to be in the margin of any polling error. So 3%, 5%. Mm-hmm. You know, anything more than 5% is a landslide nowadays mm-hmm. in North Carolina politics, I think. And I think we're going to be in that kind of competitiveness. I think the other factor that I'm really looking at is, as always with every election, it's about turnout. But in particularly, what's the generational dynamic at play? And I think for folks under the age of 40, they have a very different, distinct, partisan, political outlook than folks over, say, the age of 60. This generational tectonic shift is going to occur at some point. I don't know when, but that kind of dynamic is going to have potentially a really big earthquake in this state in terms of moving things subtly to shift from one side potentially to the other. So this seems to be playing out ground zero near you in Cabarrus County. Yes. We have a Senate Majority Leader who represents Cabarrus County. It's been a reliable Mm -hmm. Republican county. Exactly. Except Democrats did pick up a seat in the House. And Democrats tell this to me. Republicans say it. Look out for Cabarrus County in the future. It's trending Democratic. It, it, it is. And, and I was always, in thinking about the Charlotte metro area, kind of looking at, I, I, at first I got interested in Union County because I thought that that is kind of the prototypical surrounding suburban county. But Cabarrus really stuck out at me after these past couple of election cycles with where that county's margins have been shrinking so much and the growth that has occurred in Kannapolis. I mean, the transformation of that city alone has been significant for that area. But now you've got Concord that is kind of meeting its growth potential there as well. And I think that that kind of dynamic is something that is the the county that kind of is it the canary in the coal mine for the other surrounding county, suburban counties, the Johnstons, the Unions, uh, the Gastons, you know, those kinds of counties. I think that that is an early indicator of where trend lines may be pushing 
You mentioned self-sorting, and we talked about this when we talked about our, or when we were in our redistricting episode, and you're an expert in redistricting. You have some books. (laughs) And so what is happening in North Carolina? Is it the lawmakers drawing districts differently? Is it self-sorting? Is it all of that? What is it? It's it's all of the above. I I, I think for, for a lot of folks, they want that one easy answer. Tell me what causes this. And I think for so many dynamics at play now, it's a multitude of things. I think the self-sorting and the geographic polarization, it, it is a contributing factor. Drawing the lines and where those lines fall plays a part. But to me, it's more about where people reside, what their comfort level is, what kind of community environment they want. Uh, whenever I teach my uh, local politics class, I divide it up into thinking about urban, suburban, and rural politics. And there are very different dimensions and what people want in their communities in all three of those kinds of geographic regions. And I think that that's playing out politically. Partisanship has become our identity in a lot of ways. And that gets reflected in where we live, who we you know, associate with, where our friends are, what kind of communities we want. I, I oftentimes quote you know, the, the bard in saying, you know, the fault, dear Brutus, does not lie in our stars, but in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, yeah, the lines can accentuate, can aggravate those dynamics, but at the heart, there are just some communities you're not going to draw a competitive district in. I, I, I'm sorry. You're not going to get a competitive district in the middle of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get a competitive district in the western part of the state. You know, It's just the reality of where people have decided their lives and what they want out of their communities and the associated political dynamics that that bring It's just part of who and what we have become. I think at times the self-sorting doesn't get fully realized. I did a a talk in Davidson in North Mecklenburg County at a bookstore there. And there was one um, lady who said, you know, I just don't understand why they can't see my point. Everybody I know thinks like I do and votes like I do. And I said, ma'am, go 45 minutes east, north, or west, and you are in a very different North Carolina from what you are living on a day-to-day basis. I just think people don't realize that at this point in time. You know, I remember when downtown Charlotte elected Republicans Mm -hmm. to the General Assembly. I remember when Senator Jon Snow, a Democrat, held that western tip of North Carolina. I think about my home county in Duplin County, uh, it was all Democrats. And now I, I don't think you can be a Democrat yeah. in Duplin County. Yeah. What happened? What, what do you attribute it to? <laughs> <laughs> so four weeks of either Southern politics, <laughs> probably Southern politics, back in the 1950s. little history lesson. Yeah. A bunch of political scientists got together and, and wrote a report about American political parties. 
And the main finding that they argued was there's not a dime's worth of difference between Democrats and Republicans in the 1950s. We need healthy parties. We need parties to stand for principles that are in opposition to the other party. Give voters a choice. Let them have, you know, a say in that regard. Well, flash forward now to the 2020s. Be careful what you wish for. Because we have clearly defined political parties. We have sorted not just ourselves in communities, but we have sorted ourselves within political parties. What I describe to my students is, you know, you could be a conservative, you could be in the Democratic Party. You could be a liberal. You could be in the Republican Party. There used to be this mass of middle in Congress, in the U.S. House. There used to be Democrats who were more conservative than some Republicans, and some Republicans more liberal than some cons- uh, Democrats. There's no middle now. It, it, there is a hole, literally, in the data that shows us there is nobody that overlaps with another party member. And I think that that dynamic of what the parties have done is basically sorting itself. Now, You can go to the great migrations of black Southerners to northern urban areas. You can think about the uh, Southern strategy that Goldwater and Nixon and Reagan focused on with white conservative voters. There's a whole lot of mixing going on, but we are at the tail end of that very clear divide and sorting. And the parties themselves have become much more rigid in terms of ideological purity. Mm -hmm. Uh, One more so than the other, I would contend, but, you know, that's up for debate as well. Layer on top of that, the community dimension, Mm -hmm. and that's where we are. I have family, friends who 20 years ago would say, we vote for Democrats at the General Assembly level, Mm -hmm. even for governor, council of state, and then they would vote Republican. Yeah. The National Party. And the conversations around the dinner table, the state party is different than the National Party. Jim Hunt was not Walter Mondale. Right. Yeah, I I think for a long time, if you study North Carolina political history, you know, going back to the 60s, but then the emergence in 72 of Holzhauser and Helms, you know, you see... North Carolina kind of settling into a long pattern of Republicans at the federal level, Democrats at the state level. And that was that kind of bifurcated, bipolar dimension that made North Carolina politics so interesting to study of why would a state vote for Ronald Reagan for president and Jim Hunt, a Democrat, for governor? What What is going on in that state? And that kind of classic swing voter, typically more moderate conservative Democrat, the parties representing, you know, very different belief systems. That to me, in thinking about North Carolina politics, kind of came to an end in 2008 and 2010, when Barack Obama was able to flip a 13 point Republican state to less than 1% Democratic win. If you just go back four years prior that pattern was still there. George W. Bush wins the state by 13 points, and then Mike Easley wins it by 12, 13 points. That, that wild swing was the typical status quo of North Carolina politics. 08, 
and then 2010, I contend, were two realigning elections that basically parted the waters and said, mm, you got to pick a side mm-hmm. and you got to become a party loyalist and you got to vote straight party ticket down the ballot because this is where the parties have basically emerged into. You mentioned 08. I saw something that year I'd never seen in my career or even watching politics growing up. Senator Tony Rand and Speaker Joe Hackney held a press conference endorsing Barack Obama for president. Mm-hmm. And I thought, legislative leaders getting into a national politics, but I think they felt that the train was coming. We got to yep. get on the train yep. and in a short term, let's, let's get on that. But I think it was the beginning of the nationalization of the state party. And, and that has been happening across the country. Uh, this sense of national dynamics, trumping state politics, almost trumping local politics nowadays. Uh, you know, a lot of political scientists would contend the national has taken over so much of state politics and local politics now to where, you know, if, if you're on county commission or if you're running for a partisan school board, you're expected to talk about national issues even though you have absolutely no <laughs> power whatsoever to deal with that. But that's where everybody has kind of focused on. That has become more intense, and that nationalization effect is just the reality of our, of our politics today. Tell us a little, or tell the listeners a little about the people that are moving into North Carolina and what their political ideology is? That's a great question. Uh, and I think that there needs to be a lot more research there. There are a couple of colleagues, Chris Cooper, who you've, you've had on as well. And I are really fascinated by that question. I think when people move to a new location, first kind of go back to what we had talked about previously, they look for communities where they feel at home that they just naturally have an affinity for. And oftentimes they're moving into communities that represent their political values. In terms of things like registration, it's gonna be unaffiliated, unless you are so intensely partisan uh, that that you go ahead and sign up with your tribe in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think the, the voter registration dynamics we are seeing you know, when, when you move from one state to another, sometimes you bring that political affiliation with you. But maybe that new community impacts the way that you think about things. And, and maybe it reinforces what you already know, or maybe it kind of subtly changes the dynamics as well. I think that there's a lot more that needs to be done in that particular area to study. Uh, but you know, the, the, the growth of this state is just going to continue. I don't foresee it. Maybe it slows a little, but North Carolina is going to continue to be of interest and people are going to continue to move here. And I think that that's going to be a, a component of what we as political analysts and political scientists need to understand better about this state. Would you say the same thing is happening with 18-year-olds who are registering to vote or your students, are they also unaffiliated? Oh, oh, by far. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Like I said earlier, they, they are the children of polarized politics. They don't like labels. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be labeled. 
No labels party. No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other possible <laughs> podcast in and of itself. Internally, they know their partisan leanings. They just don't like the labels that the parties have become. And so if you look at the most recent numbers, the Gen Zers, they are about to hit 50% registered unaffiliated. Mm. I, that, that is just mm. a dynamic that's going to continue to play out. That does not mean that they are political independents, that they can swing one way or the other. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in data, and I rely on folks like the Pew Research Center that does a lot of generational politics analysis. And they, they've made it very clear, millennials and now Gen Zs, they have the biggest partisan identification gap that we have ever seen in terms of generational cohorts. Most of the generational cohorts, when you get down to it, they're fairly evenly divided, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 51, 49, you know, whatever. There is a significant gap in the partisan identification particularly among millennials, but now we're starting to see it play out among Gen Z. And if they show up to vote, Mm -hmm. if they decide to become engaged, which is harder and harder nowadays, they have the potential to transform things. But the question is always who shows up. And that's where you get the, the, the big dimension at play, I think, in this state. Seems like the challenge, right? They, they look at the two brands and they, don't really want to affiliate with them. It feels to me that the parties are having a hard time adapting to this new unaffiliated dynamic. It feels like an existential threat to the the party's existence as we know them today. Or is the two-party system just so institutionalized it's here forever? Well, I, I think the institutionalization is a major component of it. You know, parties tend to adapt. Parties will change. It may take time for them to do so. I think we're seeing a real issue with, again, generational politics of, you know, the boomers don't want to give up power. You know, younger people are fighting to get their voices heard. And and I think at some point that's going to be that kind of transition. If these folks who are so unaffiliated, who don't see value in either political party, where's their home? Where, where, where do they express their partisan voice? And I think at some point it's probably just going to be the lesser of two evils. We, we sometimes say that in politics. I, I hope that they would see value in participation uh, because it is we the people who ultimately have the governing authority or should, and we should be the ones expressing that governing authority. But I think for young people, they're trying to figure out where is my political home I've got some ideas, I've got some values, I've got some principles, very different from my elders, but do I see myself being represented? Do do I hear my voices in the conversation? And I think we've still got a ways to go with that. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be a good transition for you to talk about this new venture at Catawba College. I saw it recently, you posted on social media. It's launching soon. Can you yes. talk about this? And there's a working title as well. Yes. So um, the college is going through kind of a strategic planning phase. 
And of course they wanted something from every department. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just throw this wild haired idea out. You know, let's have a center to study North Carolina politics and encourage public service. Well, be careful again, be careful what you wish for because the, the president comes and goes, man, I love this idea. And I was like, okay, what have I gotten myself into now? Uh, but it is something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, we got some initial, uh, startup funds to basically focus on a center for North Carolina politics and public service. I think, you know, trying to, again, understand this state and help to communicate that knowledge is critical in this day and age. UNC Chapel Hill used to have the program on public life, and that program got closed down in 2011. There really hasn't been anybody that's kind of taken up that that baton. Um, not saying that I'm going to do everything that Farrell Guillory did, uh, but I hope if we can kind of carry that work on, and also encourage the notion of public service to, to folks in a broader sense. Uh, one of the early initiatives I want to try and get is an endowment to support students to do public sector and nonprofit internships. Wow. I think internships are critical in college education opportunities nowadays, and oftentimes public sector or nonprofit internships are unpaid. So if we can support those students financially, maybe have a speaker series, bring in people that are thinking about how to bridge the divide, that don't necessarily want to stoke the flames of division, but, you know, let's work together mm -hmm. kind of thing. One idea I've also had is maybe holding a summer workshop for high school civics teachers, you know, the, the, the opportunity to, to have professional development, to understand what is going on in current day dynamics, and then teaching that in ninth through 12th uh, grades. Those are some of the early thoughts about what the center would, would be able to, to focus on these first couple of years. When do you see it roll out? So I desperately need to get through 2024, okay. mm -hmm. uh, along with a commitment to um, the Commission on the Future of North Carolina Elections. Okay. Uh, so we're looking at tentatively the spring of 2025. Um, we need to do probably some fundraising, get the word out to some uh, donors uh, in that regard. But that's, that's the likely official rollout. So you're a listener of the podcast, yes. so you probably know this question is coming. <laughs> if you had a magic wand and you could change anything in our politics today, policy or otherwise, what would it be? Getting people of different perspectives into the room and having them listen. Oftentimes, embedded within us, there are some core values and core beliefs that maybe one group focuses more on these sets and the other group focuses on these sets, but they're, they're all there. And I think just having folks sit down, listen, hear the other side, again, not necessarily having to agree, but understand where folks are coming from. I think oftentimes that intensity of you're part of my tribe and he isn't, and therefore he is the enemy that doesn't do us any good. And what I hope people would come away with is, okay, yeah, I know where she's coming from. Don't, don't agree with her, but at least now I understand. And maybe I don't see her as the enemy 
per se. Maybe we do find commonality. Maybe there is something that we can work together on because we both value these principles or values. That that would take a pretty big Harry Potter-esque size wand to, uh, to try and instill, unfortunately, today. Kind of goes back to you telling the, the person, just travel 45 minutes yeah. south, north. And, and it's hard because of the self-sorting and yep. the caucuses and yep. the parties. And yep. it's like, hey, get out of your bubble, right? Yeah. Get yeah. out of your bubble. Go talk to somebody else. I mean, party loyalty can be a good thing. Sure. And, you know, certainly from those of us that study it, we like to see kind of commonality and, and some grouping, you know, that, that isn't kind of desperate in, in that regard. But there there's the flip side of the antagonism and viewing people. If you're of the opposition, you must automatically be the opponent and using the rhetoric of he's my enemy or she's not worthy. And that inflames the situation and just builds those walls even greater that I think needs to be ratcheted down somewhat. I agree. Well, Dr. Michael Bitzer, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your scholarly work, your media work. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. It's been my, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. This is our second interview with a political scientist uh, on the podcast. We had Professor Chris Cooper on the podcast a few weeks back. He's over at Western Carolina. I have to say this about both of these gentlemen. Their students are so fortunate to have them as their professors. I just imagine that a lot of the attention is given to state politics. They both stress that in their interviews. I remember taking maybe one or two classes about state politics. One in particular was taught by an adjunct professor, Jim Van Hecke at UNC Greensboro. And I just loved it. I loved talking about state politics. And in many ways, it came to life more than talking about Congress. We really do appreciate Dr. Bitzer spending time with us on the podcast and talking North Carolina politics. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's tweet of the week is from Amy McConkie. She's at Amy underscore McConkie on Twitter. The tweet says, at daughter's parent-teacher conference. Teacher, your daughter really loves Taylor Swift. Me. Yeah, it's kind of her thing these days. Teacher, her table mates begged her to talk about anything other than Taylor. Finally, she agreed to change the subject to Travis Kelsey. <laughs> Seems like all we're talking about in my house is Taylor Swift. A couple weeks back, or maybe it was last week, it was before the Eagles had their bye. Travis Kelsey's brother. Jason Kelsey, mm-hmm. the center. You know he future. was named like one of the 
sexiest men. I'm very aware of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're watching the Eagles, and my wife is pulling for the Eagles. I'm like, why are you pulling for the Eagles? She said, Travis Kelsey's brother plays for the Eagles. It is amazing how this has taken over popular culture. Yeah. Well, everybody's happy that Taylor Swift is finally dating someone who's like a little manly, you know? <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> That's true. Uh, Monday night, I got home and, or maybe it was Tuesday, uh, Julie said, did you hear that Taylor Swift changed her lyrics to yeah, her song? That happened on Saturday. It, and the people that were at the Argentina show really did the work for the nation because those videos were up on TikTok almost instantaneously. Yeah, well, it's taken our household by storm. And it got me thinking, you know, we're heading into Thanksgiving next week. And Thanksgiving tables are known for not only the good food and the fellowship, but sometimes there are some disagreements about politics or whatever's going on in the world. I'm sure Israel will be a topic of conversation this Thanksgiving. It seems to me that Taylor Swift is a safe place for us all to pivot to if we get in a situation on Thanksgiving. Is it though? Because I have found that men like to say, <laughs> men like to say, well, all she does is write about her breakups with boys. Well, that is true. She she does kind of burn some bridges. Yeah, she's talking about her life, and she talks about other things. Her mom's cancer treatment. I'm a, I'm with you. I'm a Taylor Swift fan. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not representative of all men out well, there. Well, you just said it is true. Well, it so is true, then you yeah. did agree with the analysis I just stated. Well, I mean, we're all bracing for the Travis Kelsey breakup song. I think they're going to get married. You think so? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's a debate to have at the Thanksgiving table. Will they get and married? And if they break they up, not? it's not a breakup song. She would do a whole album. You're so stupid. You don't even know anything about Taylor Swift. <laughs> She'd do a whole album called The Chiefs? No. Well, just think about it. She just released 1989, Taylor's version. And like three of the songs were new releases from The Vault. You know, that's what you listen to the re-releases for, hmm. the vault or the note change. And they were all about what, Harry Styles. Harry Styles? Yeah. The singer? Yeah, because they dated. I didn't know that. Yeah. See, before this, her type was like lanky, no muscle, that type of thing. Was lanky required? <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder if anyone has on their list, you know, short, balding, paunchy. Your wife. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. That is my gratitude for this Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, so this is a man's man is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Travis Kelsey, uh, a tight end. You know, athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, her first album. Do we need to... Do we need to do this? No, we don't need to do this. <laughs> okay. uh, but we can talk about Thanksgiving. Uh, you said that at your Thanksgiving table, when you go home to Illinois, it is it is a very harmonious table. There's not much talk of politics. Yeah, well, you were talking about like fighting at Thanksgiving. I'm like, we've never had an argument at our Thanksgiving table that I can recall. But we do have different tables set up. Mm. But And you have an itinerary, too, that your mother keeps you on yes i am my mother's daughter and she runs thanksgiving and it's not a thing where like everybody brings one dish she does it all hmm. 
And so for the week, she has like a typed up schedule and like times for everything, things to go in the oven the day before, times to do certain things. Really works as long as you follow the itinerary. So she's not one of those mothers where she does everything. And then by the time Thanksgiving comes, she's like, y'all don't appreciate anything. I've been slaving away for the last three days. And you ingrateful kids. Okay. Yeah, me either. No, you know that my, never happened to me either. <laughs> you know my mom is precious. She is. And you're not just saying that because she listens to the podcast. No. She is very precious. You're not going home this Thanksgiving, though. No, I haven't gone home for Thanksgiving in a long time. Probably since law school. Yeah. We're staying in town having my mom come over, my sister. Um, you know, the kids will be in town. That'll be great. But mm-hmm. I, I say great. I'm putting air quotes. Yeah, you already it. sound defeated. Uh, and you know, look, I'm uh, dementia is a serious thing. And I know it's very painful. It's very painful in our household. But good gracious, it is tiring to have someone in full blown dementia come to Thanksgiving. Uh, it's rough. Mom can't remember much of anything these days. And uh, she claims she's never been to my house. I told her this weekend, I'm like, hey, you're coming over for Thanksgiving. She's like, great, I've never been there. And I was like, and when are you going to marry Julie? <laughs> and who is Isabel? You know, the, all, it just, it's just so tiring. But it'll be nice to have other people there because I feel like I'm the one answering the question over and over and over again. I love my mother and I hate that she has dementia. And I hate it for everyone out there who's dealing with it. But, you know, sometimes it's comical. I've laughed at your expense a couple of times when she's been on the phone with you and she's <laughs> accusing you of things. Yes. Yeah. We get the police called on us probably once a week. You and your sister. You yeah, mean. me and my sister. We'll go over and visit. And, you know, what I usually do on Sunday, my mother loves rotisserie chicken. So I'll bring the rotisserie chicken in. Then she'll start putting it on place. She's like, I've been cooking all day. I really want you to eat some of this chicken. And then you'll sit in the living room. You're watching television and you hear her in the other room. She's like, yeah, I need the police over here right away. <laughs> it's just like, you know, SWAT team feels like they're coming in. At this point in her dementia, though, they kind of know us so they're like yeah miss lewis we'll be over there and then we come over and and, you know well i hope you have a great thanksgiving i'm looking forward to the week off we are taking the week off next week so there will be no new podcast yeah we will be back with a new podcast on thursday november 30th we're looking forward to that enjoy this time off we hope that you get to spend the week with your family and while you're at the dinner table please remember to do politics better or not at all.